Welcome, everybody, to episode 57 of Generation Jihad, another long, delayed episode. I am Tom Jocelyn. I'm here, as always, my colleague, Bill Rojo. Bill? Hello, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense Democracies and have been running FTD's Long War Journal for a while. Um, this is a long, delayed episode for a lot of reasons. It turns out that getting Bill, uh, getting uh, a time slot to work for both Bill and myself is very difficult, right, Bill? Oh, it sure is. Tom, you have the best excuse, though. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's that great of an excuse, but... but what, testifying to Congress isn't a good excuse? I Twice? Guess, I guess so. <laughs> I guess, you know, I mean, it sort of took up a lot more time than I expected, but... Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's on my end. There were a few things that that led to delay. One is I testified twice for the Senate, one uh, once for the Senate Armed Services Committee and once for Senate Banking Committee. Um, it's Senate Banking and a variety of other things, which I always forget, but we'll just call it Senate Banking. <laughs> um, we could talk a little bit about that if you want uh, as a, a kickoff. And then we got a few other things to talk about. Um, we got we I want to talk today about the suicide bombing in Kunduz and what that means for the ISIS-Al-Qaeda rivalry. Uh, we can talk about that, Kunduz-Afghanistan. Um, I think we could talk a little bit about the uh, Pakistani Taliban, which we've been tracking for a while, has been reforming once again and is incorporating uh, multiple groups once again into the fold. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, there are probably a few other issues we could talk about, but I guess we could start off by talking about um, testifying for the Senate twice. Um you know, it's always an interesting experience. One of the things I always say is on this podcast, as, as our listeners know, I like to talk. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when, when you're talking before a senator testifying, you only get five minutes and five minutes is sort of like a like a tweet length amount of time for me, you know. Um, so you do your opening testimony, your oral testimony, which I basically wing it um, almost every time when it comes to oral testimony. I sort of just scribble down some notes to myself right before doing it and then just go with it. A lot of people read their oral testimony. I gave up on that a long time ago. I just sort of just say what I think. Um, but anyway, I do the oral testimony. And then, you know, every senator in this case, since it was before the Senate, each senator only gets five minutes to question um, the witnesses um, as well. And that's not really a lot, a lot of time. You can't really get out everything you want to say, especially because a lot of times the senators want to get out their preamble or get out their talking points and the points they want to make. And then they only have a very limited amount of time to ask you questions. And, and, and when one of the panels, the Senate Armed Services Committee, is only two witnesses, that's a little more manageable. When you go to four witnesses, it sort of becomes, you know, you have even less time to actually um, give your answers. Um, it was an interesting experience. I mean, I know um, based on testifying for Senate Armed Services Committee that um, Senator Tammy Duckworth listens to the podcast, or at least has listened to a recent episode. Senator, your staff, if you're listening, uh, you're welcome. Uh, you know, we applaud, as you heard me testify uh, before your committee, we applaud your call for accountability and anybody on the Hill in Washington who's calling for accountability when it comes to the debacle in Afghanistan. Um, that's long overdue. It's not going to correct everything at this point, but I think our nation going forward needs to start, um, you know, needs to start having some degree of accountability for all these rotten decisions that are made over time. And it's not just talking about this year, of course, talking about going back 20 years, really. And you can listen to our previous podcasts about, you know, our take on that and, and, uh, you know, the, the mistakes that remain along the way. Um, we know. I know that some others express interest in in accountability as well, and I think that's a, that's a recurring important theme here. So we want to emphasize that. And as you can tell by my testimony and by the podcast, we're nonpartisan. I know that annoys some people. They want to typecast us, um, but you know, I, I agreed with some of the stuff that the Democrats said. I agreed with some of the stuff the Republicans said. Look, I none of this is partisan for me. You know, we, we're, we're just judging this based on our own experience following this war for so long. So. Um, Bill, I think you watched some of the testimony or anything stand out. Oh, to you yeah, no, absolutely, Tom. Yeah, I wanted to say again, you know, thanks to uh, Senator Duckworth and and all the other senators who are uh, particularly the the Armed Services Committee. That's where this the issue of accountability really seemed to rise, and we do hope there's a follow through on this. It's it's important to understand how you know. And again, we could go go back to the last episode and hear our views on that. I don't want to rehash them. I guess but, last two episodes actually. Yeah, last yeah, right. yeah, Ted, absolutely. Yeah, um, and it, this is this is the important issue of this. You can't expect to succeed in the future if we don't learn the lessons of the past. It's extremely important to uh, to tackle this in a nonpartisan manner. 
Um, and we certainly cannot let the architects of failure drive this process as well. Uh, you know, Tom, I think you just did a fantastic job on this issue. I have a lot of respect uh, piled upon the numerous respect I have for you. You, you navigated the difficulties and, you know, the sometimes the, the, you know, as you note, the lot of some senators want to get their political points across, but you, you, you stuck to your guns and navigated that perfectly. And I'm, I'm immensely grateful for your efforts there. No, thanks. I, I, you know, I just tell, say what I think, and I just was representing Long War Journal and representing, I think there, we have a few friends in U.S. government and elsewhere who've been on top of these issues for a while, and I hope to do them proud. I know they listen to the podcast. You know, just basically a small set of people um, that have been, you know, we've been communicating with and talking with about these issues for a very long time. And I know that um, I think we, we all share a common um, disgust, really, for everything that's transpired here in a lot of ways. Um you know, it's interesting when you go before the Senate too, um, you know, it, it's funny, you know, you, you take, for example, like Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's one of the more progressive, obviously, members of the Senate, and um, she has her points to make. And it's funny because, you know, you listen to her make her points and, you know, you and I actually agree with some of her points, you know, including when she, you know, she read a list of, you know, at, at both the hearings, she attended both the hearings and, and she reminded uh, uh, viewers or whoever was paying attention that um, she read a list of comments by senior U.S. military personnel about how we were turning the corner in Afghanistan for years. And of course, you know, my joke is we we turned the corner so much so that it turned right back into the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Um, but but I mean, th- but that point is correct. I mean, we agree with that. Um, you know, it, there are other points that are made by Republican senators that we agree with. You know, the Republicans were, of course, very much um you know, saying basically that they objected to the manner of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, you know, particularly withdrawing from, uh, you know, conducting this evacuation through the airport in Kabul. You and I agree with that. We were saying as early as April when President Biden made the decision to get out that the withdrawal should have begun then for civilian personnel. I know there were some people were trying to argue against that and say, well, if you did that, then you were going to throw the Afghan government under the bus. But folks, the Afghan government only lasted three and a half months, you know, it, during the offensive, I mean, how, how much faster do you think this was going to go? I mean, it's, so I don't really buy that. I think, you know, we both would have maintained um, Bagram and done some things to make sure that uh, the last American who turned the lights out did so in Bagram, not in Kabul, um, which was a, a hectic uh, evacuation. You and I are both, I don't want to get into this now, but you and I are both involved in some ad hoc efforts to get Americans out of Kabul, um, you know, remotely. So, um, you know, via our computers and our cell phones and, you know, we we're we are we're much more enmeshed in that haphazard withdrawal process than probably people know, or at least we have a lot more insight into it than people know. And it was a total disaster. But that's not the our sole focus on this. There's 20 years of problems here to cover. So, um, and that and that's the thing is that I think um, I hope that some of the senators, including Duckworth, who were interested in getting some accountability over 20 years, they they do a real deep dive on all this. I think it'd be, I think it's gonna be difficult, however, to have a commission that that covers a 20 year war, just knowing how things in Washington work um, or, or, or don't work, you know, Um, it's gonna be almost impossible to get into all this. We've given you our outline or a brief sketch of what we would do um, in previous podcasts. Um, But, you know, I think it's probably going to take, you know, a long time for any kind of measure of, of sort of realistic accountability here to set in. A um, few other quick points on this. Um, you know, I think the what was interesting too was that I don't think anybody stood up for the um, withdrawal deal that was um, executed by the State Department and with the Taliban on February 29th, 2020. I don't hear anybody defending that deal at either hearing, which is good because that deal obviously played a big role in the debacle. That, of course, deal was done under the Trump administration. We've flogged that deal many times. I would just say that, um, Bill, as far as you and I are concerned, um, we stand on our record on that 100%. You can go back and look through everything we said and we wrote. Um, we told you what was coming under that deal, that that was all farce, and that that was really the that's that that was the death knell for the government in Kabul, and indeed it was. I would I I know I wish I were wrong about that. I know you wish you were wrong about that. We weren't. Um, but there were a lot of people who went along with that deal in Washington and pretended it was something other than it is. And that really sticks in my craw, um, you know, because it was pretty obvious that that was all nonsense. But I didn't hear anybody at these hearings stick up for that deal at all. But I don't think they they learned the lesson of the deal either, because you, you, ha- you have this dichotomy where people people think, well, mil- the military endeavor failed. So we have to res- res- uh, rely on diplomacy. But yes, critique the military effort all you want. You and I have, you know, the flaws in the, in the war effort. 
But diplomacy here failed miserably as well. I mean, it's why I called it servile diplomacy. You know, the U.S., you know, the people are acting like, well, we just need to rely on more diplomacy now with the Taliban in Pakistan. And the point of my testimony for the Senate Banking Committee was basically, what are you talking about, right? I mean, the U.S. has been has has had diplomacy for most of the last 10 years with the Taliban. That ended in multiple fiascos, you know? It did not achieve anything for American interests or any of the principles we stand for or anything, quite frankly. Um, you know, you could say, well, allowed America to withdraw troops without getting attacked by the Taliban, as if that's some diplomatic accomplishment. They were willing to watch us retreat all along. So I don't want to get off on all these things, but I, I want to point to um, all these issues because we've covered in the past. But look at the Senate Banking Committee testimony. And I think that some of what I said there sort of stuck in the craw of some people in Washington. Um, because you hear now, Bill, what do you hear? You hear this idea that there's going to be, you know, the U.S. is going to use aid or assistance to have leverage over the Taliban. This becomes a new talking point. Bill, do you think we have any leverage over the Taliban? You can read my testimony. What, you know. No, Tom. And yeah, you, you're you reading my mind uh, as we go forward here. I wanted to comment on on uh, Senator Warren's, but you you obviously hit that perfectly. And yes, this is an issue. And, you know, to to put this in context, we we never had real leverage against the Taliban when we were in country with military and diplomatic pressure or presence. We attempted to pressure the Taliban to change behavior. It didn't happen. We signed that servile deal and we withdrew from Afghanistan. The Taliban never changed their behavior. Why would anyone in the right mind think that the Taliban, we would have leverage over the Taliban now? Um, we think, you know, this is the, the constant problem is we're, we're approaching this from our point of view. If if we were the rational actor of the Taliban, how would we act? But we're not looking at it from the Taliban's point of view. The Taliban, its singular goal is to rule Afghanistan. Everything else is secondary and tertiary. If they can get aid, extract aid from the West, they'll get that. But they're not going to change their behavior based on what, you know, they, they figure they'll get what they want. And oh, by the way, what did the Doha deal and the U.S. withdrawal teach them? All they need to do is stick to their guns and they'll get what they want. Those are the lessons that have been learned over the last 20 years by the Taliban. And now they, they're they pushing to get international aid. And why? Look, I'm going to say something, Tom. You and I discussed this, this privately. Providing aid to the Afghan people, I am extremely sympathetic towards to doing that. However, I am unwilling to do this in a manner that will support the Taliban. And I... You know, we were so quick. The United States was so quick to leave, so hurried to leave. The the talking, you know, to the talk about the money wasted and whatnot. Well, then we left. Let's you know be done. If China wants to recognize the Taliban, let them provide aid. If Pakistan and Iran, which fomented and supported the Taliban's insurgency, if they're happy with the Taliban, let them provide financial aid to the Afghan people. If the Russians want to get on board with this, let the Russians do it. I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's horrible for the Afghan people, but U.S., we've spent enough money. We've spent enough blood and treasure in Afghanistan. What is the point for us to now to support the Taliban? Because aid, like money and like it's fungible, the tal it's going to flow through the Taliban. The Taliban is going to be propped up by this. I, you know, given that we've abandoned Afghanistan, I'm not willing to use American taxpayer dollars to prop up the Taliban. We don't have leverage. If we provide money, there is no leverage to get them to change behavior. They're going to do what they want to do. We have to pre stop pretending, but this is how we got here. How did we get here from 20 years of war? We pretended the Taliban was something that it wasn't. We pretend, you know, it was, we've lied to ourselves, not you and I, Tom, and obviously most of our listeners, I'm sure. But, you know, our leadership has has spent the last two decades lying about what the Taliban is and is not. And I'm just unwilling to uh, to provide any more money to support that group. Well, the Senate banking uh, testimony that I did, um, you know, that was the, the main point of my testimony was if you're going to look at aid, you know, first of all, I had a whole section on these outside actors, including China, Russia, Iran, Pakistan, were all – support of the Taliban. That was my point is if you think that giving aid to the Taliban provides us with leverage, which is the talking point in Washington, well, here's the problem, right? The problem is that all these other bad actors are giving aid to the Taliban as well. And they have multiple sources. It's not like they're uniquely dependent upon Western aid, right? So that's the first myth busting fact about all this. But if all these other bad actors are doing that, then why not just let them do it? As you said, Bill, I mean, what, what's the point here? The other point is, you know, I pointed out, you know, if you look back through the history of this, America gave 
$30 billion in military assistance and reimbursements to the Pakistani um, intelligence and military establishment since 2001. More than $30 billion, right? What leverage did that provide the U.S. when it came to the Taliban senior leadership? Zero. It provided zero, right? No, it did not change Pakistan's behavior whatsoever. And you could say, well, America didn't have a consistent effort to try to leverage that money. That's true. You and I were complaining about that for years. But the point is, is that America, either way, America showed no ability to have leverage or to gain leverage with that aid over Pakistan. And they have been the prime enabler and sponsor of the same guys who are now running the Taliban in Afghanistan, right? And so if we don't have any leverage over their prime state sponsor, then why do you think we're having any leverage over them with money? It just doesn't make any sense. And so the other thing, you know, I mean, obviously there are a number of other points in the Senate banking testimony. I think it rankled some of the senators, including Senator Moran was a little, I think, a little uh, perturbed that I was saying that um, the U.S. doesn't has never had any leverage over the Taliban, um, you know, and he asked me a question, what would I do now? And I was like, well, basically, I don't know. I mean, I'm just I'm here to tell you that the emperor was nude all along, you know, and the U.S. doesn't know what it's doing. So I don't I'm not going to assume that it knows what it's doing now, you know, and and he thought that was a non-answer. And it, it wasn't a non-answer. It actually was a very poignant answer, I think. I think it was actually one of my better answers because it actually cuts to the problem here is everybody has these general talking points that aren't actually wedded to anything. They're not based on anything, you know? You know, Tom, and, and that's a that's a key point you're making there. Sometimes the solution is to not do anything. Everyone always has to have an answer. There has to do something. Well, how about in this, this case, we do nothing um, and let others sort this one out? Uh, that is an answer. It is, it is a solution to do nothing. I, I just, I'm unwilling. Maybe there is a solution of how we can... Maybe there's a way to get aid to bypass the Taliban. If there is, I don't see it. How are you going to get past Iran and Pakistan to get through to through inside Afghanistan without Taliban influence? Well, well, even beyond that, even beyond that, the Taliban runs an authoritarian regime. Yeah, exactly. A big, big part of my testimony was this is an authoritarian regime, folks. You know, they're not going to let, you know, one of the senators. Yeah, Senator, of course, Senator, it's impossible. Yeah. Senator Toomey, who was a ranking member on Senate Banking Committee, he, he, he had the great question. He said, you know, is the Taliban going to allow the U.S. to uh, allow the U.N. to have a peacekeeping force to distribute aid in Afghanistan? And I agree with Senator Toomey. I said, no, you know, uh, you know, ranking member Republican on the Senate Banking Committee. No, you think the Taliban's going to allow UN peacekeeping force in Afghanistan now? Or you, I mean, you know, he's right. You know, they're not going to allow that. And I, I, I very firmly put down that. But what came up too was that um, one of the other witnesses was this uh, a, a woman for whom I have great respect, Nahid Farid, uh, who was a member of the Afghan Parliament, and she said, you know, very clearly, basically. Um, don't empower the Taliban. Don't give aid to the Taliban and let them distribute it and figure out who gets what. I mean, that's a key point, right? And it's, it's, it was also in my testimony was that why are we going to let the Taliban decide who gets what? I mean, you're just strengthening their totalitarian regime, really. And what interest does America have in that? I don't know. Um, but the final point, and I'll just I'll turn it back over to you, is that one of the issues that came up was another one of the witnesses. Um, I put in my testimony that, you know, I'm willing to entertain food. You know, medical supplies, stuff that's not fungible, stuff that um, is not easy to resell, that isn't going to be a cash cow for the Taliban and Al Qaeda. You know, if, if we can provide, if there's a way, um, you know, Ms. Fareed said, you know, we could provide aid through NGOs. I think that remains to be seen. Um, but if, if it could be done that way, we could provide, you know, non fungible or, you know, less fungible aid through NGOs to the Afghan people. Yeah, sure. I think we, we all support that. Um, I'm just not willing to turn, give a bunch of cash to the Taliban and say, we're going to, Trust you to be good boys now. Forget that, you know? Yeah, and, and and Tom, I mean, you know, less fungible is definitely every dollar that we go that we don't, that the Taliban hasn't doesn't have to spend to take care of people is, is that's us propping up the regime. I, this, this is, I, str- I grapple with this because I want to have, help the Afghan people, but I do not want to help the Taliban in any way, shape or form. And even if the, the aid is directly going to the Afghans, well, that's less that the Afghans or less that the Taliban, less problems that it has to deal with, um, less diplomatic effort it has to get to get the money from elsewhere, less it has to go to its own coffers. And then, you know, now and we even have countries, you know, this is obviously a non-starter. Uh, the, to release that billions of dollars that's in the U.S. banks that was for the former Afghan government. I mean, if that money is released to the Taliban, I, 
I think you might watch my head explode over here. I might have to get that on video for everyone because this. <laughs> well, you know, Bill. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question, Bill. Right about that money. So it's either seven and a half or nine and a half billion or different figures thrown yes. out of these hearings or whatever it is. Right. Um, here's the point. They say, well, that's Afghanistan's money. Well, is it? How many hundreds? How many hundreds of billions of dollars is the American taxpayer waste in Afghanistan over years? Yeah. Right. I mean, really. So, um, you know, because so the Taliban's, um, their propagandists on Twitter, I don't know if you've seen this, some of this, they're, they're out there saying, you know, release Afghanistan, yes. money, release our money, because mm-hmm. they want, the Taliban wants the money. Of course they do. I'd be, I'd be willing, if I knew that money was going to go to help the, actually help the Afghan people and not the Taliban. Yeah, okay. You know, I, I, you know whatever, I'd, I'd be willing to sign off on that. But the idea that it's their money, I think is kind of a joke, given how much money America's wasted here. You know, we just gave you... You know, the Taliban just got billions of dollars in military hardware. From the US, <laughs> just read right? my mind again, you know, Tom. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> we, we just left the Islamic Emirate 2.0 is just a better armed version of Islamic Emirate 1.0. You're welcome. You know, I mean, what you know, I mean, it's like, what are we talking about here? I don't even know. But the point is, is that Washington, the Washington, the Washington, you know, babble speakers, I'll call them, you know, the diplo speak, they want to say, well, you know, we give them money, we give them aid, give them some kind of assistance. You know, we're not talking about, they'll even say, well, we're not talking about direct cash payments. Okay. But we're going to give them assistance, and that's going to provide us with leverage. That whole idea of leverage is a way to try and short-circuit this whole messy conversation over this. And I don't want to litigate everything that's in my testimony, but you know, the bottom line is that nobody – you can't really get around all these problems, and they, they want to. You know, Yeah, if, if you want to support the Afghan people, if you want to use your aid to support the Afghan people, just say it. Don't quit with these garbage leverage arguments and changing behavior arguments and things like that. It's, it's, it's ridiculous, and it's insulting. And, you know, your point about Pakistan is just spot on, Tom. I mean, $30 billion. Yeah, it was like $35 billion or something yeah, like that, too, just that, the figures. I mean, it's just insane, right? And it didn't, you know, Bill, you you were on this right from the beginning, right? You were on this right from the beginning. At any point in time, Bill, at any point in time, did that money lead to a change in Pakistan's behavior vis-a-vis the Taliban? Did it? No, to- never. Because, it, you know, we, we just think that we could buy our way that these people are to be bought and they, and they're, and the Pakistanis, their, their view was sure. We'll take your money and do what we want. Cause we know there's no consequences. That is the opposite of leverage. That's enabling your enemy because let's face it. The, 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 the Pakistanis by f- supporting the Taliban, the material support for the Taliban, cash, weapons, intelligence support, safe haven, training, all, directly resulted in the deaths of every American and, and the wounding and maiming of every American in Afghanistan. And we, the price tag for that was $35 billion to Pakistan. Um, whatever number you want to put on Afghanistan, you and I think a lot of those numbers are highly inflated. Let's just call it a trillion if we want to call it and losing a war. That's just no way to manage money. That's no way to run a country and it's no way to conduct a foreign policy. Yeah, it's just, it's all, but see, the point is, is it's all unhinged from reality, right? And so they just, they have these talking points that Washington loves to use, and that's what they're going to hear to. Now, I'll say this um, before we move on from the testimony point, because a couple of things we got to hit here today. Um, Senator Inhofe, um, ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, um, he had three good questions for me about, um, you know, what this all means, um, you know, and, and where this is all going. Um, there were a couple, a couple other senators, I think, that had good questions about the Taliban's regime and the fact that, it, it you know, the Taliban. I think that um, I think a lot of the Republican senators in particular picked up on the on the point that the Taliban 2.0 is really just the Taliban 1.0. It's literally the same guys in a lot of cases just came back and just were waiting 20 years. It speaks to the failure of the whole thing. Um, so there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, interesting points back and forth there, I think. Um, well, I would say this, I, I, just to get back to uh, Senator Warren's questions for a second. Um, what I thought was interesting, though, is what I wanted to say is that even though we agree with some of her criticisms, obviously, the U.S. military and what they were saying, two quick things. One, um, you know, the military was operating under the parameters of erratic and noncommittal and ambivalent political leadership in America over 20 years. That's part of the lesson here. You know, right from the beginning, there was this ambivalence about being in Afghanistan and fighting in Afghanistan. You can go right back to the Bush administration through the Obama administration, through the Trump administration, and finally the President Biden. I'll say this about President Biden's decisions to withdraw, and I think the manner in which the withdrawal was uh, executed, um, contrary, I mean, Senator Warren wanted to defend the, withdraw- the way the withdrawal was conducted. I don't think that holds water. Um, that's a that's a political argument. Um, but yeah, but in terms of actually the decision to withdraw, um, 
I'll just say this about President Biden's decision. At least he wasn't ambivalent about it, right? <laughs> he said, you know, I mean, listen, we've been dealing, you and I have been dealing with Trump and Obama and before that Bush's stuff on all this stuff. And there was a lot of confusion about yeah. what we want to do in Afghanistan. And at least President Biden said, hey, we're out, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, agree or disagree, it was decisive. Um, it was decisively disastrous, but it was decisive nonetheless. And, um, you know, uh, I guess you get one point and subtract 10. So, I mean, and that's yeah. and that but that's the point is like you got to weigh all this, you know, and I, I think the aftermath people don't really understand the aftermath is coming. One of Senator Inhofe's questions was about the aftermath of what this means for the global jihad. And you and I have been tracking, you know, what's happening across the globe. And this is clearly a boon for the Al Qaeda side of the jihadi coin. I mean, across the board, you know, I, I don't I don't want to get sidetracked on this here. But, you know, there was this interesting video that came out from Ibrahim al Kosi, the a senior leader in Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, an ex Guantanamo detainee, and you know that that video was laced with gloating over this whole thing while threatening America. And we can come back to that maybe either this episode or a future episode. But um, you know, th- this is just one example of many of what's going on right now with all this. And I don't, I don't think for, um, I don't think President Biden or his team or a lot of the people who are involved in the decision making process um, really understand that dynamic or part of this at all. Um, so. Any event, the point is like, you know, here's 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 the thing. We go with what arguments we agree with or disagree with. It's not partisan for us. You know, yes, there were partisan people, uh, partisan senators on both sides who wanted to make their partisan points. And some of the partisan points we're going to agree with because we think they're right, not because they align with partisan politics. You know, Um, other arguments we don't really agree with. Um, But, you know, to me, overall, I, I would hope that there are more efforts toward accountability going forward. Um, before we move on, I just want to emphasize this because maybe we'll make this the title of this episode. If you look at both of my pieces of testimony before both hearings, it's very simple, folks. I was telling Washington that the emperor was nude all along, right? The emperor didn't know what he was doing. The U.S. government didn't know what it was doing. And, you know, I think that's that's a point that people um, have a hard time hearing and they and certainly doesn't make me popular <laughs> to say it. Um, but I, nonetheless, I think it's true, right? I think there are a lot of examples. So, um, let's go, let's move on though, Bill, because I, I don't yeah, want to rehash. Yeah, no, sorry, can, I, can, can I just mention sure. two quick things before we do that? Sure. sure. Yeah. I mean, look, we're never going to win popularity contests in, in Washington. This is what happens when you just try to, to play it straight and look at the plus and minuses of everything and, and just, you know, basically call the balls and strikes, which I think you and I have done. This is how we were able to understand Afghanistan and, Explain why the deal was bad, why the the surge was going to fail, while why our counterinsurgency, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We you go on with our successes. No one wishes we were wrong more than us. We believe us. We that's true. And then, then I would say the second thing that was I would say was disappointing from the hearings is the, just that the um the, you know the attempt to make it all of the problems about Biden's decision to withdraw or all the problems you know was the Trump's decision to uh, sign that deal when the reality was it was 20 years of failure and the two probably the two points where it really started to fall apart was the Doha deal and under President Trump and then the decision to withdraw and you know I think we, we saw some senator Senator Duckworth again she stands out she you know I think she really wants to get to the bottom of this and I saw indications from some other senators as well but, you know, I just wish we could get past this this partisanship on such an important issue. I do understand it's politics and people need to make their political points. But, you know, both of those decisions could be uh, monumentally bad. And they were. Yep. All right. Let's talk about some. I agree with all that. Let's get to some current events real quick and wrap up a, an abbreviated episode here, maybe. Um, first thing is that on Friday, October 8th, there was a suicide bombing in Kunduz. Um, that um, Islamic State, uh, so-called Khorasan province, carried out. Um, look, this was another yet another suicide bombing. It's a civilian target. Uh, this is not a hard target to hit. Um, it's against um, Hazara Mosque, which they call a shrine, um, because and it's part of the ISIS campaign. And they even said this in their messaging from Baghdad to the Khorasan. They're going to keep fighting the Shiites and keep going after Shiites. It's something that the Islamic State is trying to export throughout um, the world where right? anywhere it's jihad is is active. They're trying to use this animosity, this violence toward Shiites as a wedge issue to earn new recruits because they know that some part of the Sunni jihadi world 
um, is sympathetic to them. And what are they sympathetic to? They're sympathetic to the fact that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have been preaching, if not always practicing, um, but at least in Al-Qaeda's perspective, they don't carry out these types of attacks globally against Shiites. Um, they know that they've been, they've been preaching restraint when it comes to the Shiites, and, the, and in particular, the Hazaras in Afghanistan, but also elsewhere, although the Taliban, there are indications that the Taliban has been uprooting uh, members of this minority and, and forcing them from homes and that sort of thing. And I, I expect you'll see more reports of violence against them from the Taliban as well. But the bottom line is that this is the type of bombing. What does it accomplish? I mean, killing a bunch of civilians who are praying. I mean, it's not. It doesn't achieve any military objective, right, Bill? I mean, it's purely it's purely a message within the jihadi rivalry. And there are a couple other aspects of that. One of which is that they identified the suicide bomber as a Uyghur. That is, um, you know, from the minority population within the western Chinese province of Xinjiang. Um, and what they say, they said, well, the Taliban, they claim that the Taliban is going to expel Uyghurs from Afghanistan and has made these assurances to China that they're not going to allow them to attack the Chinese government. And so they're trying to use that as a wedge issue as well. So the way I look at this bombing is they're trying to exploit two wedge issues, potentially. One is this animosity towards the Shiites um, globally that they know that some Sunni jihadis are sympathetic to um, and that they don't believe in the Al-Qaeda, the Al-Qaeda style restraint. The second thing is that the Turkestan Islamic Party helped um, the Taliban win the war in Afghanistan. We've documented for years that the Turkestan Islamic Party is actually part of Al-Qaeda. Again, that doesn't at any point in time justify what's going on in Xinjiang or the Chinese government's behavior. Go back to previous episodes of our podcast where we discussed that. Um, but that's simply a fact of the matter that they helped the, the Taliban win um, as this Al-Qaeda affiliated group in Afghanistan. And there is some ambiguity about what they're going to be able to do going forward here um, in terms of targeting the Chinese interests and Chinese government officials and the like. And so by by using a Uyghur suicide bomber, what ISIS, their so-called Horasan province, is trying to do is trying to, to exploit that issue as well, right? And say that basically, one, we're going to keep attacking Shiites. Two, we're going to keep, uh, we're, going, we're going to use Uyghurs in suicide bombings. So if you try and restrain them, um, it, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, we're going to give them an outlet to to have at it. Don't you think that's about right, Bill? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right, Tom. And you know that the, the, this is where the Taliban. I'm uh, going to make two points here, real quick. Uh, the Taliban playing a dangerous game with outreach to countries like uh, Russia and China, um, states that uh, that have uh, you know violently oppressed Muslims, um, particularly China with its uh, subjugation of the Uyghurs and internment camps and whatnot. So I do think that the that that that's a wedge issue that the, the Islamic State is ripe to exploit. Will it remains to be seen. Um, again, from the TTP standpoint, maybe it's politically st- savvy enough to understand it now has a safe haven and that those issues that there's things that could be done. It's to its advantage to have you a mean TIP, the TIP, TIP, TIP. I'm yeah. sorry. We're going to um, get the TTP. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're mixing, you're mixing our acronyms here. So that's oh, my right. goodness. <laughs> that's, right. that's why I hate to use them, Tom. I'll be honest with you. Um, yeah. So there's that point. And, you know, and this is just a sort of a, t- a tangential point here. You know, look, uh, it is interesting to watch the Taliban now um, harvest the fruit of 20 years of, of suicide tactics. Um, it's the, it's, uh, it's the sour fruit of this. I mean, look, the Taliban itself has launched suicide attacks in mosques, um, in public places for two decades. And now they're on the receiving end of this. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're getting what they deserve. They have now, obviously these civilians, who are killed in these attacks don't deserve this, but it is interesting to see how the Taliban is going to respond to itself being a target of suicide tactics. Um, it's, it's uh, in a way just deserts these, these, you know, look, the Islamic state is under at, at least as things, uh, are situated now. It is the Taliban is, is not threatened. The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is not directly threatened by the Islamic state. Uh, Khorasan province, uh, it doesn't risk gaining control of territory, things of that nature. But the, this, what is happening to the Taliban now is their legitimacy is being challenged and its ability to have a monopoly on violence and, and whatnot is being challenged by the Islamic State. Um, I expect the Islamic State to, to crack down, or I'm sorry, the Taliban to crack down on the Islamic State. 
Um, the reality is, is they probably understand a lot about these networks, uh, these Islamic State networks. Now they're going to have to make the hard choice, just like they made the hard choice in Panjir to go in and, and, uh, and take casualties in, in order to conquer the 34th province of Afghanistan. Uh, and the last province of Afghanistan, is it going to have to commit those resources to, to go after the Islamic State, the, those who won't, you know, get back into the fold? I think there's a, probably an effort in, in Afghanistan for the Taliban to absorb the parts of the Islamic State that it can, and it will likely go after the ones that it can't. The Islam, and one quick point too. The Islamic State has none of the, uh, the, the uh, benefits or, or the, you know, the, that the Taliban had. It doesn't have safe haven in Pakistan. doesn't have it in Iran. It doesn't have it in the, in the stands to the north. It's an in, independent actor who everyone is its enemy who does not swear to its leader. So the Taliban does have that advantage. And it also has the advantage that it's willing to ruthlessly go after this group. Um, unlike the United States, which, you know, and we had to, you know, certain, restrictions on doing it. I don't think you're going to see the Taliban do that. Now, will they be victorious? Only time time will tell, but the Islamic State is definitely a thorn in the side of the Taliban. Yeah, now let's get to the TTP. So now we can move from the TIP, Turkestan Islamic Party, to the Tariq Taliban, Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban. Um, you had a report up that was summarizing sort of the reconfiguration of the TTP. The Pakistani Taliban is one of these Interesting organizations where Al Qaeda's hand has been detected throughout its existence, right from the very beginning. Um, you know, it's obvious we don't need to litigate all that here. I think it's there's so much evidence to that regard. It's it's obvious. Um, but the TTP was always this joint venture of different parties um, originating in northern Pakistan that came together and united under a common banner. And it, but it's evolved over time, and it's evolved for a lot of reasons. One from counterterrorism pressure from Losing leaders and and battling Pakistani forces and losing leaders in drone strikes and other operations in Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, you know disputes over power, whether it came to the rise of the Islamic State, which definitely um, sought to pick off mid level Taliban uh, Pakistani Taliban commanders and did, although it didn't succeed in, in subsuming the group entirely, not even close. Um, there's the poor leadership. You and I have talked about Mullah Fazula, who was um, the, the second most recent leader of the TTP. And you, can, and you can go off on that bill and how disastrous his his leadership was. Um, but basically, they've been reconfiguring now for the last year and a half or so. They've been announcing a variety of different um, groups rejoining them. I wrote something up in August of last year about two of these groups. I've got a theory about why they announced their um, allegiance once again to the Pakistani Taliban. But why don't you give us a, a breakdown, Bill, of what you wrote up and why it's important and what's going on? Yeah, so Mullah Fazula, the um, the previous Emir of the movement of Taliban in Pakistan, he was a he was an unpopular choice for the le- leading the group after Haki Mullah Massoud was killed. Um, I believe he was killed thirteen or fourteen. I, I can't remember the year. It's, it's just all going so so fast. Uh, but he wasn't a part of the you know the royalty of the movement of Taliban in Pakistan. That that would be the Massoud clan in, in North and South Waziristan. That traditionally held the leadership, top leadership positions. Fazula from SWAT, um, he was given the leadership, which was clearly a bad decision. By the way, the Afghan Taliban, particularly the Haqqanis and Al-Qaeda would have played a role in this. So despite, you know, many of their smart things they've done in the region over the past uh, two decades, this was not one of them. Uh, once Fazula took command, a lot of these groups just split off and started to do their own thing. You know, look, the argument that we've heard, we've heard in Afghanistan, I'm going to digress here for just a second. Everyone has always said, oh, the Afghan Taliban, there's really 20 Taliban. It's a loose confederation of groups. That's not true. The Afghan Taliban is very organized. I think we could see with its takeover and the formation of its government and its 20 years of effective insurgency and defeating the U.S. and the Western backed Afghan government that it was a very cohesive, very centrally organized group. The the TTP is definitely more of a confederation of groups with a central leadership that provides direction, but not to the degree of cohesiveness as the Afghan Taliban. So a lot of these groups broke off. Um, after Fazula was killed, um, they replaced their leader with a, uh, with a Masood. His name is uh, Norwali Masood. He's a cleric, so he has an influence. And over, so for the last two plus years, 
he's been working to put the band back together, the, the TTT, TTP band back together. And he's doing a pretty good job. He's gotten, he's actually done in a very effective job. So over the past year, nine groups, including two of those you mentioned, Tom, uh, that you had, um, expertly written up last year. Um, they, so it looks like just, I, as far as I can tell, just about everyone who is anyone, um, is back in the fold. Oh, by the way, two Al Qaeda groups are included within this, but that's not, un- that's not uncommon. We've watched Al Qaeda, small Al Qaeda organizations, uh, be absorbed in the TTP in the past. So, so Wally, he, he Wally is working to, Again, to, to make the, the TTP under, uh, Fazul also, you know, its insurgency went down over the past year. Their attacks have increased. The effectiveness of their attacks have increased. And a part of this is getting the group back together. Now, I think some of these groups may not have split off actually, and that they act, some had actually reunited under Fazul. Um, however, once your leader dies, you have to swear allegiance to the new elite, new leader. And I think that there may have been delays and, in the oath, there, there's various reasons for this, whether it's done in person, they might be negotiating deals for position power within a, within the group. But, um, but any, regardless, um, he is getting groups back into the fold. The insurgency is increasing. Uh, they're starting to kill Pakistani troops together. If you believe the, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan and its statements on its website, um, which I give a lot of credence to, just like I do to the Afghan Taliban. Um, the Pakistani military typically doesn't report attacks unless it kills, um, or, or, um, its soldiers, but they're, they're claiming multiple attacks a day in the tribal areas. So the TTP is trying to get its feet back under it. And remember, from 2007 to 2011, it controlled much of northwestern Pakistan. It forced the Pakistan, once they got 60 miles, Within uh, Islamabad, um, they took over a, a district called Buner. Oh my God, Tom, we tracked that over a de- well over a decade ago. Isn't it crazy? Um, it, uh, you know, then the Pakistani military, because they kept the, the, the Pakistani state kept signing peace deals with it and the, the TTP, just like the, the Nazis, right? Just like Hitler. Oh, well, we'll just take more. And that's what they kept doing. And the, the government kept signing peace deals and they kept taking more because their ultimate goal was to conquer Pakistan. The military only then was forced to uh, to uh, retake areas from the TTP, just like the Afghan Taliban in 2001 after the U.S. invasion. The TTP was driven from the battlefield, but the bulk of its leaders escaped into Pakistan. Um, the TTP leaders that have been killed over the last decade. Nearly every one of them were killed in U.S. airstrikes, not in, not by the Pakistani military because they weren't reaching into Afghanistan. So, so you have a, you have a situation that this bears watching. Can they take over the Pakistani state? I doubt it. There's issues with the Afghan Taliban and its relationship with the Pakistani state. There's complications, but they certainly, um, smell there's blood in the water. They just witnessed their brothers in Afghanistan. The TTP played a key role. In the, um, in the Afghan Taliban's victory in reestablishing its Islamic emirate. And the TTP wants that for itself as well. Yeah. And of course, a couple other points here about this is that, um, you know, the Norwali Massoud, he very quickly renewed the Pakistani Taliban's allegiance to Habatul Akhanzada, the Emir of the Faithful, of the Afghan Taliban, um, in August. It was just days after, um, the Taliban consolidated its victory over the Afghan government. Um, Norwal Norwali Massoud came out with a statement, and there were you know a bunch of media uh, um, accompanying that to emphasize that. So that that's an ongoing relationship there, obviously too. There was actually there were pictures on social media I saw purportedly showing Norwali Massoud in Kabul itself, which wouldn't be surprising, of course. We know the other TTP guys have been operating in Kabul. Um, one of the other aspects of all this um, too is that we know that a large number of Pakistani Taliban figures, fighters, leaders, operatives, what have you, escaped during the Taliban's jailbreaks, the Afghan Taliban's jailbreaks uh, this year, that basically the Afghan government was holding a lot of Pakistani Taliban personnel, um, one of whom was uh, Fakir Muhammad, um, who was a major TTP figure, a major Pakistani Taliban figure, somebody who is known to be close to Ayman al-Zawahiri or, or worked with Ayman al-Zawahiri in the past. By the way, Ayman al-Zawahiri is not dead. Uh, you know, uh, 
uh, yeah, the, those reports, which were, you know, gibberish. But anyway, um, the Suzawa here, he's not dead, obviously. You know, he's still on the scene, <laughs> which I guess is to the consternation of many people who were claiming he was dead for months. Um, you know, but anyway, the bottom line is the TTP, the Pakistani Taliban, is still active here. There is an ongoing issue about, you know, what's going to happen here now with the Afghan. This is the wheel of jihad point that, um, you know, the, the Pakistani state is in bed with the Afghan Taliban and the Haqqanis, of course, which have uh, played an integral, integral role in the Afghan Taliban. But the Haqqanis and the Afghan Taliban are then in bed with Al-Qaeda and the Pakistani Taliban, which then comes back against the Pakistani state. So they're going to, I think at a minimum, they're going to try and carve out that territory again in northern Pakistan, as you said, uh, Bill. They're going to try, that would technically expand the emirate, I think. Um, but beyond that, we're going to find out, you know, how 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 much they really have a go of it. Um, you know, beyond that, I, I don't know at this point. But um, the bottom line is they have a lot of personnel and they've now reformed once again and they were not defeated throughout this war. They were, they were one of Al-Qaeda's innovations, I would say, throughout the war was standing up the Pakistani Taliban as a cutout for it to accomplish its goals. It was a smart play, actually, to have a jihadist group that is openly loyal to the Taliban's emir, um, but is still um, not beholden to the Pakistani state. It gave al-Qaeda some wiggle room. This shows where they are strategic actors that are thinking about this stuff, not just in terms of the X's and O's of carrying out individual terrorist attacks, but they're playing a political game. And one of the things that we saw in the Bin Laden files, files recovered in Abbottabad, Pakistan in May 2011, is that Al-Qaeda was willing to negotiate with the Pakistani state, try and get ceasefires in place um, to to basically get them off their back. And one of the one of the individuals they worked with in that regard was Siraj Akhani, who's now the interior minister for the Afghan Taliban. And Siraj Akhani, they were they were basically the Haqqanis and Al Qaeda were using the Pakistani Taliban as a wedge issue, as a as a way to pressure uh, and force the Pakistani government to get off their backs. Well, now um, the situation is different. At that time, that was about 10, 11 years ago. They were um, much more. Um, they much. They, they. It was much more necessary for them to have safe havens in northern Pakistan at the time with American military forces there and the like. Now that pressure valve has been released and they have safe havens inside Afghanistan. So we'll see how the game evolves from there. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Tom. It's, it's, it's really interesting. They, they, that wheel of jihad and Pakistan's place on it really makes this thing complicated. And, and the Afghan, the Taliban, the Afghan Taliban is in an interesting and tricky spot here. It's going to be interesting over the years to see how it tries to manage its relationships with these jihadist groups. Cause look, they just, they, they're going to want payback. They did, they're going to, they're owed it, right? They helped the Taliban reestablish the Islamic Emirate. Now the groups like the TTP want their piece of the pie in Pakistan. The TIP wants their piece of the pie in China and so on and so on. And it's going to see, it's going to be really, really interesting to see how the Afghan Taliban um, manages this up. You know, Tom, maybe they'll just moderate. Maybe there's leverage <laughs> to be had against the Afghan Taliban in order to do this. Maybe we should use U.S. taxpayer dollars to apply this or not. Yeah, well, you know, I'm on the not, uh, not side <laughs> of that. But um, the the other thing there, too, I would just say is we, we know one of the ways the Afghan Taliban is going to hide uh, deal with us. They're just going to lie because they've been lying all yeah, along. That's and that's they, really- they, they are themselves a jihadist group and they've been in bed with these other jihadist groups for years. They're blood brothers and they'll just lie about it because they've been lying about they lie to this day about Al Qaeda being in Afghanistan and the like. So, um, you know, they've, they've set up a very what's. You know, what was interesting, uh, just to wrap this up, unless you have any other points. No, no, Tom, that's that's a perfect spot. Uh, I would just say this, is that I didn't find very many people when I was testifying for the Senate who were complicit in the lie. You and I, when it came to the Doha deal, what we realized is that there were people in the U.S. government that were very interested in lying on the Taliban's behalf. They want to put words in the Taliban's mouth and say that the whole issue that brought America into this war in the first place has been solved. Check that box. We can come home. Don't worry about it. You and I said, look, America, if the time is up and America's leaving, then you can leave without lying on behalf of the Taliban, right? Um, what I detected, I, I, and I hope this stays true, is that there weren't very many people who were invested in lying on behalf of the Taliban when it comes to its relationship with Al-Qaeda or other groups at these hearings. I didn't hear anybody, actually, who was. Um, they recognized it, I think, whether there was the senior Republicans or the senior Democrats, they all recognized that that relationship is unbroken. Um, listen. 
I don't know what to do going forward here. I don't think any of these people do either, but at least we're getting, at least those facts are being recognized, which is good. You and I were worried that there was going to be this complicity within the U.S. establishment to cover up those basic facts because it was, they're, un, they're inconvenient for a lot of way, a lot of reasons. Um, and I didn't see that here anyway. And I hope that that remains true. And I hope that the parties within the U.S. government who are still going to be on the counter, still have a counterterrorism portfolio to manage and keep track of, that they are honest in their assessments about this as well, because this was obviously, this is an ongoing issue and um, there's no evidence whatsoever that the Taliban has betrayed Al-Qaeda. Yeah, exactly, Tom. I mean, this is the important, you know, I, I, I'll break it down into just simpler terms and it may be a little unfair to the one party, but, you know, on one hand, you had the apologists who were making the excuses for the Taliban and then you had the useful idiots who believed the arguments and, and, and pushed those arguments through. I hope that second party can honest take an honest look at all of this and and question those who push those ideas and push back on it and demand accountability for it because that's at the at the end of the day the one point I you know watching the the generals testify and I don't I'm not going to extend this but their refusal to take responsibility for any of this was extremely frustrating there needs to be accountability for this um in order for us you know not because I want to scalp Although that would be nice, but only because this stuff matters. These issues matter and we can't do this again. This is the, if what happens in Afghanistan stayed in Afghanistan, that'd be fine. But when bad ideas and bad methodologies are pushed in order to try to understand your enemy or lie about your enemy, it, it's not limited to Afghanistan. What happens if these, if this bad ideas and bad methodologies are pushed with respect to China or with respect to Russia or Iran or other enemies and adversaries out there. This is how you lose wars and waste billions, if not trillions of dollars. And American lives, most importantly. Yeah, and the lives of others. I mean, it's, that's the whole lesson. Amen. Um, yeah, I mean, just to wrap it up, the emperor was nude all along in Afghanistan. And that's the point. Well, uh, thank you for tuning in to our, our thank you to our audience for tuning into this week's episode of Generation Jihad or this latest episode of Generation Jihad. Hopefully, we'll get back on a weekly schedule. Uh, please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you again, hopefully, a lot sooner than last time.